0: When it comes to investing, retirement, and legacy planning, the decisions you make today can greatly impact the quality of life for both you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight, unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your financial future. Good news! You found the Growing Your Wealth radio show with Brian Evans. Brian is the founder of Madrona Financial Services, and with his background as a CPA, he brings a unique perspective to the investment and financial planning world. So get ready for an hour full of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Welcome to Growing Your Wealth with Brian Evans.
1: Thank you so much, and welcome to Growing Your Wealth, the show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to invest better, live better, retire better, and give better. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions, but the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. How you doing today, Brian?
2: Doing great. Thanks, Jeff.
1: Always glad to hear that. I hope our listeners are doing well today, too. Brian, the theme of today's show is going to be real estate. And I think you once told me, Brian, that a lot of your clients, your investors people that you deal with made money in real estate did they not
2: well yeah and one of the reasons we do talk about real estate as a licensed investment advisor normally you know we talk about stock markets and so forth but if there's really three major asset classifications that someone can invest in passive not your business passive investment categories the biggest one being bonds The second one, uh, biggest one, is the global equity market, stock market. The third biggest category of investment is investment real estate. The fourth biggest one is insurance company products such as annuities and permanent life insurance. And the fifth is cash and cash equivalent CDs, that kind of thing. So real estate's the third one. It's almost as big as the stock market globally. Right. So I think it's a topic that you don't hear on the radio much other than, you know, you'll hear the maybe some topics about listing your personal residence for sale, buying and selling principal residence. This is everything else. This is every kind of real estate that isn't your principal residence or a second home virtually. Every other kind of real estate out there would be classified as commercial or investment real estate, and so that's what this topic is. I think it's un- under talked about because it's yeah, you're right. A lot of my clients own investment real estate uh, in some way, shape, or form. The, the bottom of the, the easiest way to get into that is a rental income, rental house market. But if you start throwing in the other areas, if you think about them all, gosh, it could be raw land, apartment buildings, fourplex, you know, eightplex, that kind of thing, strip malls, uh, net lease properties, industrial parks, self-storage, it could be medical office, uh, office buildings, there's so many different categories of investment real estate out there. And so I wanted to talk about that.
1: So real estate is the topic of today's show. And we're going to start off today by talking about capitalization rates. We'll also get to depreciation recapture capital gains on real estate. We'll talk about something called opportunity zones and REITs, public REITs and private REITs. But as I said, let's start with talking about real estate capitalization rates. First of all, what are capitalization rates?
2: Yeah, it's one of those terms I wanted to define because so, you know, A lot of times uh, people use a term over and over and nobody really, it's kind of like a joke nobody gets. We all laugh and act like we knew what <laughs> you were talking about, but it's like, I don't know what a capitalization rate, I, I know the, what the word is or they call it cap rates or whatever. <laughs> and I nod my head, but maybe I don't exactly know what it is. And because it's it's kind of hard to define. A capitalization rate to me is the rate of return expected to be generated in that investment property. And so what I mean by that is, maybe 10 years ago if you invested in a um, let's say a net lease property like a, oh a, a building that leased to, to Walgreens and you, you bought the building and they leased it back from you, you might expect, uh, you might have expected at the time to get 9%. And that was the expectation because other buildings like that were generating 9%. So if you put up a million dollars into that building, you would expect after your expenses that your net profit would be 90,000, 9%. Well, today you'd say, well, 9% that sounds like a good investment. Yeah, you're not going to get that on a Walgreens lease today because now cap rates are lower. So the 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 first thing about defining this is it's something that changes over time because that same building today might give you, I'll just throw a number out there, 6% or Mm -hmm. 5%. And, you know, well, it's the same million dollars, but instead of 90 grand a year, I'm getting 50 grand a year, right? Yep it's still worth a million dollars, even with a lower net rent, because that's the expectation that people expect to get from owning an investment piece of property. So the capitalization rate is essentially the net income that you would put in your pocket, essentially, relative to the fair market value of that property.
1: So is a capitalization rate used, I mean, in practical purposes, is it used for determining the value of a property?
2: Yeah, that's essentially what it is. Because, you you know, you say I've got a property, and I can you know really get to the net profit without doing appraisal pretty quick mm-hmm. if I understand what the current cap rates are, what what the investor expectation is. So let's say that you have a property that's netting fifty thousand dollars a year after expenses. That's how much you're essentially putting in the bank, not counting principal payments or depreciation, but the actual uh, you know, an interest and all of that. Just your income minus repair expense and uh, the uh, property taxes insurance, second kind of thing, you're knitting fifty thousand. Well if I know that the cap rates are five percent on that type of property at this time, I take the 50,000 divided by 0.05, and I'm going to say, well, that building's worth a million dollars. So I can actually get to approximate fair market value if I just know how much your net profit is on it and what approximately other investors are willing to pay what their expectation of earnings would be on properties, similar properties at that time.
1: So, Brian, is the cap rate consistent among all types of properties?
2: Oh, uh, that's a great question because there's a couple of things I want to cover there. One is, uh, let's say that you have an Amazon warehouse with a 25-year lease, and another property is a 600-unit apartment building built in 1940 <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and in a little disrepair, and, and, but even after expenses, you know, it's, it's earning a certain amount investors do not need as high a return to be convinced to buy the, invest in the Amazon distribution warehouse because they know that's a great investment. They're going to pay their bill. There's nothing they have to do to it. It's probably a, a lease that Amazon would pay for any repairs and so forth. So the cap rate on that might be 3% or 4%. Whereas something that might be high maintenance with a lot of moving parts and more risk factors like an old apartment building, maybe the cap rate on that is closer to 10 because investors going, well, gosh, it's better be worth it to me to want to buy something like that. So I better get a much higher return on that. So property by property, that's why I said that the type of property, even within the same city limits, will have different cap rates associated at at the same time now i said within city limits now we have a difference here so let's say that commercial property in seattle has gone up so much And the rents didn't go up that much. So the cap rates have been coming down, 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 down. And let's say uh, Seattle properties are three and a half. Well, if you went to the Midwest, uh, you might find that the expectation is a much higher net return. And so those cap rates on the exact same property in a different state might be twice as much. It Mm -hmm. might be 7% there. And so it can be a geographic thing, a property by property thing, and a uh, what year are we talking about thing.
1: So it's important to know your cap rate to determine if your investment is producing properly. Brian, I've heard this term called cap rate compression. Can you tell me what that is?
2: Yeah, uh, that's been an interesting phenomenon uh, last several years, increasing the value of investment real estate. So let's say that you had a property that the cap rate at the time was 8% and you bought it for a uh, million dollars and uh, the cap rate was eight. Well, over time, because the interest rates have been dropping, and CD rates and bond yields and everything out there—it's hard to find any income anymore. And now, you know, I said in this area, maybe maybe the cap rate is now four percent. So even if you didn't increase the rents at all, you had a million-dollar property when it was a cap rate of eight. That same property with the exact same rents coming in might, uh, if the new cap rate is four percent, would have doubled in value because the expectation is half as much. So it doubles the value of it when when... when the the rents are constant. So what we've seen is this this, uh, phenomenon called capitalization rate or cap rate compression has allowed people that own and invest in investment real estate to see their appraised values and their sales prices and their fair market values of their property go up, 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 even in the situation where they have not even increased their rents.
1: Brian, you used to give seminars all the time, and I happily attended several of them. And one of them, you were talking about someone selling real estate and getting a 5% cap rate using a Section 1031 exchange into a DST, and an audience member stood up and told you what his cap rate was, and it was pretty surprising.
2: Yeah, it was in Portland, I remember, and he said, well, my cap rate's 15%, and why would anybody do that 5% thing? And I chuckled to myself because I happen to know that Portland cap rates are never 15% percent. They're more like Seattle's and there's no such thing. So I said, well, how did you first off, you know, as polite as how did you compute that number? Well, I took my gross rents and I divided it by what I paid for it. I said, well, OK, well, we got two issues right now. It's net rents after expenses, and it's not what you paid for it. It's fair market value today. Oh, okay, well, you know, oh, you know, he started doing his computation, and, and, and I said, well, did you have any repairs? Oh, yeah, I've had a lot of repairs. So, how much money have you been putting in the bank the last couple of years on it? He said, well, none, because I put it all back into repairs. And I was like, okay, I'm thinking, well, your cap rate's zero. You <laughs> just told me it was 15. And we went through the exercise together and through his example, and it was so funny because he became a commercial for the DST after that, because <laughs> yeah. he was like, yeah, and, he, and oh, and I left this part out. He was in his late 70s and very overweight and did not look in good health. Right. And he's running these rentals and he's active and at the end he says, "You know, I'm really getting tired of working on these things. I you know, I don't feel as good as I used to and and I I'm not making any money and I can make 5%, you know, on this passive investment, not pay any income tax, you know, at the time. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, Oh, wow. uh, Maybe I could, should look into that. That sounds like a perfect solution for me. And I'm chuckling at you. Okay. You're the guy who just told me you're making 15%, but okay. So yeah, a lot of people think cap rate is computed by dividing their gross rents into what they paid for it. Well, yeah, then, then it looks really, really high, but, uh, that's, that's probably not realistic. So, it's, it's net income, it's fair market value. And so the, uh, a lot of people, when, when they come to me, I, I'll look at their tax return. I say, well, I know it because I'll ask them if they're in real estate though. They'll, they'll say, hey, I make 9%, whatever. And I say, well, I'm looking at your tax returns for the last two years and I'm doing the computation. You told me how much you think it's worth. And uh, usually I'm at about 2%. I'm at one, zero, one, two, two and a half, right in there for a lot of people. And they go, oh yeah, you know, that building is getting older and I I spend a lot on repairs. And so, uh, yeah, and I just don't get the, the income I, I used to. And I've got really good tenants, so I haven't raised the rent in 12 years. And I'm like, well, then, yeah, I, I understand that. That's why your cap rate's 1%. Yeah, I, I didn't I never realize it was so low. I said, yeah, you got a million dollar property, you're putting 10 grand a year in the bank. Yeah. Well, would you like to put 40 away and you know, not have to do anything? Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. So that's where often a, a DST discussion starts.
1: And DST, of course, stands for Delaware Statutory Trust. We're talking about real estate capitalization rates here with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs on Growing Your Wealth. Once again, our show's a podcast. If you've missed any part of our conversation or you want to hear it all over again, simply go to where you get your podcast and search Brian Evans Growing Your Wealth. If you got $500,000 or more to invest and you're looking to hire a new financial advisor, call 844-MADRONA to get your complimentary, no cost, no obligation financial review. 844-MADRONA or you can request it online at madronafinancial.com. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth. We'll be right back with more of our show after this.
0: Tired of getting only half the story? We've got you covered with the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. You're listening to Growing Your Wealth with your host, Brian Evans. Now, here's Brian. Welcome back to the show.
2: I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. And this segment, we we'll to be talking about depreciation recapture and capital gains on real estate.
1: And Brian, you know, I will admit that I don't know a lot about this subject. So it's very good that you're here to inform us all, including myself. Now, with real estate and the word depreciation, to me, they don't go together in a sentence. How does that work?
2: Yeah, it's kind of funny. When you buy real estate, uh, you think about, well, it's going to appreciate, appreciate, you know, over time Mm -hmm. and not depreciate. Uh, But depreciation is just an IRS term. So the IRS looks at the real estate that you own, investment real estate, I should say, as something that will go down in value over time because it's older you know and and that's that's true and so the structure is going down in value because it's older so let's say that you bought a building or a rental house investment real estate and uh, there's actually two components there's the land that it's on and then there's the structure itself the depreciation is allowed on the structure itself so as that structure gets older you know, the IRS allows you to write some off each year because they think, well, you're going to have to repair this someday. And it's not worth as much, you know, a 40-year-old structure is not worth as much as a brand new structure, a similar one on the same piece of land. Now, the land itself does not get depreciation. You do not get to depreciate land. That is actually the part that's appreciating in your real estate. Uh, it's not necessarily the the building, as it's just getting older, but it's the land underneath it. So we really have two components. From an investment standpoint, Point your property's going up in value, but that's because the land's going up, not because the building's worth more necessarily. <laughs> but from the IRS point of view, you get some write-offs over time as they believe that the building part is worth less than it used to be when it was newer.
1: So if I'm understanding you correctly, Brian, and let's pick Bellevue. We always pick Bellevue if I bought an apartment building or maybe even a home, something like that in Bellevue, and I bought it 30 years ago, you know that it's you know worth a whole lot more today than it was 30 years ago. What you're saying is that the building itself is worth a lot less, but the land is worth more?
2: Well, I, I'm not necessarily saying that. That's from the IRS point of view. Okay. So that's, that's a good thing here. So let's say you paid a million dollars for that apartment building, and you bought it 30 years ago, well, you have, will have fully depreciated the building by then because it's on a 27 and a half year life. Mm-hmm. And so let's say you paid a million. And when you when you set it up on your original depreciation schedule, you said 25% of the value of this was the land and 75% was the apartment building. Okay. And so that 750000 that you allocated to the apartment building, is what you've been depreciating over the last 30 years. And now the basis, the unwritten-off basis of that is zero. It's actually zero because you've written it down. You've taken depreciation deductions against your taxable income over the last 30 years. The land you didn't get to depreciate, so your cost basis in that million-dollar property is now 250000 hmm. Well, when you sell it for $5 million, <laughs> so because you know, the values went up, now you're going, all right, how do I pay tax on that? Because I paid a million, I sold mm-hmm. it for five, I got a $4 million gain, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, you have $4 million of capital gain, but the 750000 of depreciation you've taken a little bit at a time over the last 30 years on that building, you got to pay that back too. That's even at a different rate. So that's what we term depreciation recapture.
1: So we've depreciated it, and then we recapture that depreciation. It seems, I don't know, It's for, for some reason it doesn't make sense to me, but I guess it does.
2: Well, it's, it's required. Because okay. like some people will say, well, I'm just not going to depreciate it, so I don't have to recapture it. Oh, the IRS is on to you. They have something <laughs> called allowed or allowable, meaning that depreciation, you say, well, I, and I've had lots of people say, well, I didn't take any depreciation, so I don't have to recapture it. Well, the IRS is going to deem that you do did, whether you put it on your tax return or not. Mm-hmm. And they go, well, l- I'm going to go amend my returns then, right? I want to at least get that. If I got to pay them back for something I never took, I'm going to at least take it. So let's go back 30 years and amend returns. And I said, well, problem with that, we got a three-year statute of limitations. That's all. You, you can mm-hmm. amend three years, but you can't amend the other 27. Well, that's not fair. I'm like, well, those are the rules. They f- they require you to take the allowable depreciation, whether you take it or not on your tax return get that refund or not. And one of the problems with that is, but my income was low all those years. I was taking depreciation deductions and at about 15% tax bracket I was at. So, you know, I was taking $10,000 a year or whatever. And I, and I, so I got 1500 bucks back from the IRS each year. I hardly even noticed that. But after all these years, you're telling me now I've got a $300,000 depreciation recapture and I got to pay it all back at once. Well, that jacks me into a higher Rate. And I'm like, well, uh, there is a cap to that rate. So depreciation recapture caps out at 25%. But you're accurate in that you may not have gotten 25% tax bracket when you were taking these depreciation deductions. Maybe you did. Maybe your income was higher and you were at a higher bracket. So, you know, depreciation recapture is its own animal. Mm -hmm. And, and you may, you may be paying it back all at once at a higher rate. And so that's one of the, you know, the negatives. And people love depreciation while they get it <laughs> until they sell their property and they got to pay it back. Well, Brian,
1: I think this conversation really illustrates why CPAs such as yourself are really worth their weight in gold because this can be a very complex topic. And it occurs to me that most financial advisors, I mean, for people who own real estate, most financial advisors are not going to be able to touch this topic.
2: No, no, they're not. Uh, let's say, for instance, let's go back to my uh, your apartment building example. Right. So sometimes uh, you can do even a partial uh, 1031 exchange meaning that you don't have to let's say you sell a property for five million dollars in this case and you don't have to take all of your money and put it into the replacement property whether it's a DST or otherwise you could hold some money out you'll just pay tax on that and that's okay to do if you need a, you know a shot of money and, and you want extra money to spend for a 10 year period of time say, well, why not do that? That's okay to do. You don't have to do the whole amount. But most people want to, they, if they don't need the influx of a lump sum and they'd rather just not pay tax on all of their sale and uh, have the, the cash flow coming in and eventually step up in basis for their heirs or their spouse, then uh, they will roll the whole amount over. So bottom line is there's a lot of options here. If you know all the in, you know intricacies and and that might be a good idea why you might want to contact someone like ourselves to, to get all the answers.
1: You're listening to Brian Evans from the owner of Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. The theme of our show today is real estate. We're talking about depreciation recapture and capital gains on real estate. Brian, let's talk about those capital gains and what the tax rate might be on those.
2: Yeah. One of the funny things that happens all the time is like, okay, I'm selling my, my property. Uh, how much is my tax going to be? And, and I just kind of have to chuckle. Well, it depends. You know, our favorite uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> saying on this show, it depends because for some people you're your capital gains based on your other income might be 0 it might be 15%. It might be 20%. It might be 238 Capital gains on non-real estate in the state of Washington might have an extra, say, 7% on top of that. Your depreciation recapture may be at any of those rates. It may be at 25%. And so now it gets really confusing because I can never answer that question. You know, I've got to run it through a essentially a tax calculation looking at all your income from all different sources, put it in a tax return, then get your depreciation schedule and look at your recapture that might be present in there and plug that in and then I got to take your sales price and back out closing costs from that and <laughs> determine if any of it was 1031 exchanged and blah 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 you know on and on. That's why uh, it's very difficult for me to ever answer a question on about taxes because it always depends you know the tax rules are so convoluted anymore that everything depends on everything else on your tax return because as you're Income goes up, you know. Congress has put in a gazillion rules about. Oh, that changes everything. Your income was up. Oh, you sold a property. Your Medicaid premium on your mm. supplements going up. I mean, ah, oh, it's just it affects everything. Oh, you don't get to deduct as much on your tax return for itemized deductions, and they start phasing out. And and there's so many, you know. One, it's like it's kind of like a domino thing. If right, you, right. you click one domino on 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 one line item of your tax return, it affects all. All the other dominoes and they all fall down. And I go, okay, I got to refigure everything now. So that's why we have computers. <laughs> that's why I have great employees that right. can run these calculations to estimate that. So really the only way to properly answer how much tax would I owe, what am I looking at? What's my tax bracket? So that you can consider, do I want to do 1031 exchange into a Delaware Statutory Trust? Do I want to take out some of the money at a lower bracket, but not too much to pop me into higher brackets or whatever? You really have to run that with uh, with a CPA running these calculations on a mock tax return, an estimate of what it might look like when you make the sale.
1: Taxes really are a moving target, aren't they, Brian?
2: Boy, they sure are. Uh, if it was easy, everybody'd do it. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, you no, know, and that's why I said we—you got to run it through through everything. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that fake it till you make it. I was mm-hmm. at a seminar with an advisor. I just about lost my mind. <laughs> I was sitting in the audience. He was talking about getting new clients, and and you you got to know taxes. And I know, you know, we don't really know anything, but just buy a book, learn a few words about it. And and that'll be enough to convince your client that uh, you know something about taxes. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're not licensed to give tax advice. Uh, You don't know it. You're admitting it. Just buy a book. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Forget my 35 years experience. That was a waste of time. Evidently, I could have just bought a book at a used bookstore for $2 and be in the same place. No, no, <laughs> that was crazy talk. So no, hopefully if you're listening, you, you have a, a good CPA that can work with financial advisor. And that's a question I get asked. Well, if I move my money to you guys, do I have to move my CPA? No, of course not. We work great with CPAs. If you have someone you, you like, keep them. They're hard to find. Yeah. And so don't, don't move to us. Don't feel like you have to move to us. I mean, some people want to, and that's fine too. But if you're a CPA listening, I'm not going to poach your client. I want that good relationship Mm because, frankly, you're going to have other people that are going to be looking for what we have. I would like you to think we're a good resource for that, and maybe you'll refer some of them to us. That's good business. So I'm not going to poach any of your CPA clients, nor if you're uh, somebody that likes your CPA, stick with them, and we'll work with them and come up with uh, better solutions for you.
1: The theme of our show today, of course, is real estate. We're talking with Brian Evans of Madrona Financial Services and Bauer Evans CPAs. Once again, you can find our show, wherever you get your podcast. You can also go to Madrona Financial and the show is posted for you right there. Once again, $500,000 or more to invest. You're looking for a complimentary financial review, which might lead to a plan. You can get yours at no cost at madronafinancial.com or call 844-MADRONA. That's
0: 844-M-A-D-R-O-N-A. We'll be right back with more of Growing Your Wealth after this. Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services
2: and Bauer Evans CPAs. In this segment, we're going to be talking about Opportunity Zones. And
1: Brian, I've got a book in front of me here that says Opportunity Zones, The Biggest Tax Break Ever. (laughs) So the question to you is, is this really the biggest tax break ever? Uh, No. Okay. (laughs) Well, what is an Opportunity Zone? I mean, I've heard a little bit about them, but I really don't know exactly what they are.
2: Opportunity zone. Okay, so that was uh, bipartisan. Democrats and Republicans got together and thought this would be a great idea. And, you know, on on the surface, and when it first came out and the stuff that I would hear, I thought, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. This is going to be fantastic. But the more and more I got into it and peeled the onion back the less excited I was about it and it eventually be- became something that I kind of call the the unicorn okay uh, maybe once in my life or my career I might find someone that, that this is going to fit <laughs> but maybe I haven't yet now you know I I've spent a lot of time getting into it and so forth so basically what it is is an opportunity zones are an economic development tool that allows people to invest in distressed areas in the United States. I'm going to put parentheses around distressed areas. right? And the purpose, the intended purpose, the stated purpose, is to spur economic growth and job creation in low-income communities while providing tax benefits to investors. So that sounds like a good thing. Mm -hmm. Some of the issues with that. One is, where are these zones? Well, there was, I believe, eighty seven hundred yeah. or so zones created.
1: More than eight thousand, I understand, in every state in the United States and even American territories.
2: Yeah, and they'll be they'll be block by block. It's not like you know we're recording from Everett, Washington. Uh, I know that we are sitting not in an opportunity zone. I know four blocks away there is one, and so you know, well, okay, we got we got all these eighty seven hundred. So this low income places away? So not exactly. It was based on a census. From 2010, and so there's some areas of you know Manhattan in there. There's Oakland Waterfront, sure, uh, South Seattle. You know, Seattle has them. And you're like, well, Seattle's not economically depressed, mm-hmm. and you know, Oakland Waterfront. Are you kidding me? That's not economically depressed. Well, it's in an opportunity zone. So in 2010, and and oh, even some of the most expensive parts of Hawaii, wow. because. The people that actually reside there maybe don't have a high income, whereas the five and ten million dollar houses are occupied by people that only use that part time. So they're not computed in the <laughs> in the equation. So it, it occurred to me that some of the most expensive real estate in America is in an opportunity zone. And and then the other thing is, is if you do invest in an opportunity zone, what happened is that, you know, there are investments into them, but they were cherry picking. I mean, you don't pick, you don't go to the south end of Chicago and build there, you're going to go, maybe I'll just build on that Oakland waterfront instead. Well, it's it's already gentrified and and already... Booming. Yeah, it's booming and it's an opportunity zone. So we're going to go there. We're not going to go to places where we got to struggle to provide jobs for low income. We're going to go to the places that we're gentrifying anyway. We got a 10 year, you know, a head start on, on seeing what's going on in these different areas. And we can see where we want to put our money. So, Brian, if
1: I invest in an opportunity zone, I'm not necessarily investing in the zone itself, but I'm investing in businesses that are in this opportunity zone. What's the benefit to me tax wise in doing such a thing?
2: Well, there's a couple of things that you can invest in. You can invest in a business, but more often you're investing in a future project to be built, Okay, uh, real estate to be built. It's not built already. It's going to be built. Okay. So now can you go out and invest in an opportunity zone? No. You can only invest the capital gain from the sale of something. So let's say that you have some a stock that you paid 100000 for and now it's worth 500000 and you sell it. You can't invest what you paid for that stock the first 100. You can invest the $400,000 gain only. So that gain can be invested into an opportunity zone. And you go, "Oh, do I get that tax free? I hear there's tax benefits." No, you get it tax deferred. Deferred. You put it off. "Oh, I got to pay the tax anyway? I thought I would get out of the tax. I thought it was tax free in opportunity zone." No. The sale from your stock just got deferred, the tax on that for, say, six years, right. and you're going to pay it then. But the reinvestment, whatever you put that money into, the 400000 that went into the opportunity zone, that if you keep it for 10 years, then when you eventually sell that investment, that gain can be tax-free. So you only defer the gain on whatever it is you sold. So this this starts getting really complicated. Right, right, right. You're saying okay, wait a second, Brian. So you're telling me I can't just invest in one. I got to sell something at a big gain. I can only invest the gain. I'm going to pay the tax anyway down the road. You know, I'm not sure where that money's going to come from because I put it into this investment. Mm-hmm. The investment isn't necessarily going to produce any cash flow for me for a long time because it hasn't even been built yet. I can't touch the investment. I don't know what it is exactly yet, and I got to hold it for at least 10 years, maybe a lot longer, and then I'll have some tax benefit in the future. Does that sound like the best <laughs> tax? No, well, what does your book say there, uh, Jeff? It on the, on says it? Uh, right here,
1: the biggest tax break ever. Yeah,
2: biggest tax break ever. Oh, right. okay. Well, well, I might debate that. <laughs> I, and and then people come to me all the time. Oh, I'm selling real estate. I want to do an Opportunity Zone. And Why in the world would you want to do that? Because with uh, Opportunity Zone, I just said you're going to pay the tax. With real estate, you can do 1031 exchanges. Right. That's an, also a deferral, but you can keep doing those and defer it until someday when you pass away and get the step up in basis. Eliminating all of the tax for your lifetime on those assets permanently. You can't do that with an opportunity zone. You're going to pay that tax in six years or whatever the, the time period is. So I certainly don't really think it's a great strategy for real estate sales. Now, if you had a stock sale or a business sale, okay, you might consider an opportunity zone if you don't need the cash flow for quite a while.
1: So if I'm understanding you correctly, Ryan, you know, I've got this capital gain. I want to invest it into an opportunity zone, but I'm not really investing it into the opportunity zone. There are businesses in the opportunity zone like, you know, Bob's computer chips decides that he's going to open up in an opportunity zone, but I'm not investing in Bob. I'm investing, if I'm understanding you correctly, in an opportunity fund, a qualified opportunity fund?
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So let's say that you, you sold your business. So here's here's where it might work. You sold your business, and you have some gain that you want to defer, and you, know, you want to invest long-term in real estate. And there's an opportunity zone out there. Let's say it's in, I don't know, kind of real estate. I'll just throw one out mm-hmm. there, self-storage. And so you invest in the self-storage real estate where it was depressed statistically in 2010, but it no longer is. It's a great investment, you think. you, I think you think you're going to have a huge capital gain from that investment someday. Well, that capital gain will be tax-free. It's kind of like a, a Roth. And so you're like, well, I'm okay with that because I got enough for my business or other sources. I'm fine cashflow-wise. I am fine cash flow wise i do not need the money right away. I can pay that tax. And so I absolutely could design something that if you can wait for that money and you think that the investment we're going into and there's some very I've seen some very good investment uh, opportunities and opportunity zones uh, offered which I believe will be very good uh, we won't know for 10 years or more right but you know I I think that they would be very good so there are uh, situations when you're selling a business or when you're selling a large block of stock at a big gain where you might want to look at this and and it's okay you know okay yeah you're gonna pay the capital gains on the sale but you've just created an opportunity for a long-term investment with long-term gains being tax-free.
1: So this is really sort of socially eco-positive investing. What I mean is that, you know, you're investing in something positive here and that you're trying to help revitalize these opportunity zones and give people jobs.
2: Yeah, I mean, that was the stated intent. As I mentioned, uh, most opportunity zones are going to places that were already on demand. They were already. Crossed over that they were no longer a place I would look at and go, oh yeah, that's a that's an economically depressed area of Seattle, and that's you know, because it's, and,
1: and that's because they named them in 2010. And yes, a, lo- a
2: lot has changed since then. A lot has changed, and that's that's exactly right. So that you know the the stated intent looks good, and the actual you know it's and so I guess that's the advantage of the investor. They're like, well, good. I don't have to invest in places that maybe didn't recover very well or whatever. I can kind of cherry pick where I'm going to put my money. Yeah, yeah, that's that's your ability to do. And so, yeah, the stated intent, I think the biggest problem with this is so convoluted and there's so many moving parts that the average American certainly doesn't understand it. If nothing else, gosh, the average financial advisor doesn't understand it, I think. <laughs> and so because it's so complicated and there's so limited sources of the money and such a long wait that, yeah, there there can be an opportunity for people, hate to use that word for an opportunity zone, but it's kind of a rare thing. I've seen a couple times where this is going to be a great idea based on somebody's situation. But most of the time, once we do the analysis and well, while you don't get this, you know, get that. Oh, well, that was the whole reason I was going to want to do it. I'm going, go, yeah, that's why it won't work. Let's talk DST. Let's talk just paying the tax. Let's talk whatever it is. It often uh, starts out as a conversation about opportunity zones and goes away from there.
1: We're talking about Opportunity Zones with Brian Evans of Adrona Financial Services and Bowery Evans CPAs. Brian, if you're a person who wants to start a business, what are the advantages of starting a business in an Opportunity Zone and what sort of businesses can I start there?
2: Well, there's an area that, that might be good for people that are considering starting a business that you don't have to put money up for something like that. You you can start your business uh, if your address is in your Opportunity Zone. That's where you, you operate your business. Then someday when you sell your business, You can sell it tax-free. So certainly if I were starting a business, I'm definitely, if I'm going to sign a lease or or buy a place, I'm going to get that map out. You can go online and actually print the map out and just see, okay, what blocks or towns or whatever is in Opportunity Zone. I would start it there. Because if it is successful someday, what a great way to do it! You know, you might have signed at least two blocks away, and but instead you signed here. Your business does great. You sell it for ten million dollars someday. You pay no income tax. Mm-hmm. Well, that's some pretty good tax advice right there.
1: Yeah,
2: uh, there are certain businesses you can't do that. The sin businesses. I, I right. chuckle when I look at this list. Did you know you can't start a golf course or a country club Didn't in an opportunity zone? Did know that zone? that
1: was a sinful business?
2: Well, you know, well, <laughs> you don't want a country club in an economically depressed area. Probably Probably
1: not going to have a lot of members there.
2: Probably not. And you can't package liquor or suntan facilities. Suntan facilities. Yeah, you can't have a tanning No, no uh, idea. Yeah, in an economically depressed area. Or gambling facilities or racetracks. So okay. don't be don't be putting no racetrack <laughs> on that. Darn it. I'm looking for a place for a racetrack. Yeah, but uh, most businesses, though, are eligible for that. So if you want to start a business in an area, so yeah, just go online and take a look at that map. It's kind of fun to look at it. of Because yeah. the first thing you'll do is you go, why would that part be in, a, in sure. an economic, and not this? And Because it was done 2010, and so things changed since then. So I always chuckle when I look in the map and go, How, who came up with this? <laughs> but they did, and, and it is what it is. So that's that can be a way to take advantage of opportunity zones if you don't have a large gain from the sale of a non real estate asset.
1: Well, an opportunity zone may or may not have benefits to you. It's up for you to decide, but again, you need to do your research and you can simply Google opportunity zones. There's a lot of information out there about that. Again, the theme of our show today, real estate. we talked about opportunity zones and we've talked about capitalization rates and depreciation recapture, cap gains on real estate here on this particular program. And coming up, we'll discuss REITs, real estate investment trusts, public and private when growing your wealth continues right after this.
0: Welcome back to the show. I'm Brian Evans, CEO of Madrona Financial Services and
2: Bauer Evans CPAs. In this segment, we're going to be talking about the difference between public REITs and private REITs.
1: Okay, Brian, I've learned that real estate, of course, comes in many forms. One of them is a REIT, a Real Estate Investment Trust. So, with me, I mean, figuring this out, it sounds like you're not directly owning real estate, but it's in some sort of a trust?
2: Yeah. Essentially, uh, if you want to invest in commercial real estate, investment real estate, and, and what I'm talking about is, let's say, self-storage, office buildings, industrial parks, net lease properties, uh, different kinds of manufactured housing areas, data centers. Uh, there's all kinds of different kinds of investment real estate out there. Most of us don't have the wherewithal to say, you know, I'd really like to own that off of that 80-story office building. I think I'll just punk down a $600 million check and buy it. Well, most of us can't do that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say that when you're driving, let's say from Everett to Tacoma, most of the buildings you're looking at are probably in some kind of a trust uh, because there you know no, nobody's writing those big checks. I mean, there a lot of them are going to be in REITs, real estate investment trusts, because that's how most investors are able to buy into real estate. So a REIT, when you buy into it, you're buying a fractional share of a company that buys real estate and invests in real estate.
1: Okay, now you said a fractional share, a Delaware Statutory Trust, we talked about that before. That is a way to fractionally own real estate as well, but there is a distinct difference, and I think you just told us, between a DST fractional ownership and a REIT fractional ownership.
2: Yeah, a DST, you're actually buying a fractional ownership in real estate. Therefore, it qualifies for 1031 Exchange. A REIT, you're buying a fractional interest in a company that happens to buy real estate. So that distinction makes it so a REIT does not qualify for 1031 exchange tax deferral. So that's why we use DSTs, Delaware Statutory Trusts, for 1031 exchanges. But if you just want to invest, and, and you can invest small amounts in a REIT and own a, a fraction of a lot of a lot of companies. So, you know, you can, we're, we're talking the difference between public and private non-traded REITs. Uh, let's talk about publicly traded REITs. Right. So they trade on the stock market. And so you can buy a mutual fund of them. And literally, uh, you could have uh, $100 in your 401k and put $10 into a REIT mutual fund. And that $10 will own, you know, essentially you'll own a share of maybe 200 different commercial properties. You know, you own two cents in each one or whatever. <laughs> its you, you can fractionalize it to an nth degree. And maybe you say, you know, I really like self-storage. I really like whatever kind of real estate data centers. You can buy a REIT that sells self-storage. You can buy any of these things. So that's a way that you can target it, or you can buy into a REIT that's just buying all kinds of different properties. Most publicly traded REITs, you are buying into a group of assets that were purchased many years ago. So that's one of the differences of private non-traded REITs. They're typically buying stuff now. Okay. And the public trader REIT, they've been around for a while. And so let's say they, they had an apartment building REIT and uh, they own the Avalon Apartments and other apartments across the country. Well, they might have owned these apartments for 20, 30 years by now. Or maybe they own properties that they have shopping centers in them. Well, you probably wouldn't buy a shopping center REIT today. if you know, But the REIT you're buying into might own them. And so that's one of the differences between public and tr- private non-traded REITs is that public traded REITs tend to own properties that were purchased longer ago and they're bigger. They own a lot more properties too.
1: Okay, so publicly traded REITs, you said you can buy it on the market much like an equity, but you also mentioned that publicly traded REITs are much bigger. So privately non-traded REITs, are, are those significantly smaller?
2: Typically, they're, they're significantly smaller. Uh, in recent years, Years, there's been ones that have gotten very big. I know of one that has over 3,000 properties now and is cl- closing in on, you know, $100 million or $100 billion of assets. So it's gotten very big. Most of them, though, are more really targeted. So they might be targeted to one specific little area. So a private non trader REIT might own just a particular kind of real estate, nothing else in a particular region of the country or, or so forth. And so if you you really are, are interested in a particular kind. Now, one thing about private non-traded REITs I want to mention is with publicly traded REITs, I said, you know, you have $10, you can buy a, a share of a, a public REIT or a mutual fund of a REIT, no problem. But uh, a lot of private non-traded REITs, you have to be an accredited investor. Or you have to be – there's another level in there, maybe a a $300,000 net worth. Accredited might be a million dollars net worth outside of your principal residence to even buy them. They might have high minimums. They might have a $100,000 minimum to get into them. So now we have some uh, differentiators as to whether you can even get into them or not.
1: Brian, let's talk about liquidity with the Delaware Statutory Trust. We know that those projects are usually like seven to ten years. How liquid are these REITs?
2: Publicly traded REITs are very liquid. You can sell them right away because they're on the traded markets. Private non-traded REITs often make you wait at least a year, and there's no guarantee that they're going to have the liquidity to allow you to sell them. Now, most of them will state that they will, that they'll offer a certain amount. But if there's a, a run on the bank, you know, they, they might offer 20% liquidity a year thinking, well, one out of five of our investors aren't going to bail in the same year. But what if they did? What if that type of, you know, what if you're in shopping centers and then and Amazon came along, you go, I don't want to be in shopping centers. And everybody else in that REIT said the same thing. And they all said, sell my stuff. And, well, they can't do it. Quick enough. So liquidity is certainly much less of the private non traded REIT. Now, one of the differences though with publicly traded REITs is that publicly traded REITs are going to be more correlated to the stock market. So I've noticed, you know, when the markets are up, so is the publicly traded REIT. When the markets are down, so is the publicly traded REIT. So they they kind of move with the market. They're very correlated to that. Uh, whereas private non-traded REITs really don't have that same correlation. They're kind of their own animal because they're smaller and they're not public. And so they're they're held for a different period of time, a longer period of time, a longer-term investment. So it's really more a reflection of that actual real estate in the private non-traded REIT.
1: Brian, when you're dealing with re- REITs, do you worry about volatility? In other words, how volatile are REITs?
2: With every asset class has volatility, and and that's why we diversify, because one of the interesting stats uh, I've seen is, you know, if we look at the different sectors, uh, REITs over the last, say, 30 years are right at the top with technology shares. I mean, they have performed so well, and that's publicly traded REITs. I've seen private uh, non-traded REITs do extremely well and not do well. And they're more of the hit and miss variety. And And so if you, if you get the right one, well, you might hit it really well because you've targeted a certain kind of REIT that was in the right kind of property at the right time. You could do extremely well so you know the bottom line with any investing is unless you think for some reason you know more than everybody else out there and you know exactly what to buy well good great buy it but we may engage a strategy where we like real estate and we like certain kinds of real estate. Let's get multiple kinds of real estate in multiple geographies to spread that risk out a bit.
1: Brian, right. it sounds like there are a lot of benefits to owning REITs, publicly and privately traded REITs. But why would someone not want to invest in a real estate investment trust?
2: Well, again, it depends on I I think REITs uh, often should be part of any diversified portfolio, Uh, real estate in some way, shape, or form, whether it's uh, actively managed by you, your own rental house, or something. I mean, gosh, it's been one of the best asset classes. Why would I say anything else else than that? I'm not telling you to go out and buy real estate right now. I'm just saying that historically, it's been very good. I would say that uh, one of the reasons why people do like to buy into private non-traded REITs is that... One of the IRS rules about REITs is they are required to distribute virtually all of their net profit every year. So they historically have been really the highest dividend paying vehicle on the stock market. You don't get much of a dividend buying tech stocks and other kinds of stocks, but REITs are required to pay their profits out as a dividend. So you might have a situation where, gosh, you were looking at annuities and and bonds and and none of them even pay as much of a yield as as a private non-traded REIT. Yet the REIT, you think is going to go up in value too. And so they might be a good cash flow play if you do that right. Because like I said, they are one of the highest cash flowing equity type investments out there.
1: Brian, if someone's interest in REITs is piqued by this conversation, I know with a share of stock, I can do that myself and I can do it no matter of seconds can you do the same thing with a REIT or you or do you have to go through a, you know qualified advisor to take advantage of these opportunities
2: yeah a yeah, great question anybody can go out and buy a publicly traded REIT you have to go through a licensed financial advisor to get into a private non-traded REIT. And so that is, that's a distinction I, I, I hadn't mentioned yet. So if you want you know, a particular targeted private non-traded REIT, yeah, you can't do that on your own. Similar to annuities or life insurance, you have to go through a, a licensed uh, professional to get any of those.
1: Our theme today has been real estate on growing your wealth. Once again, if you missed any part of the program, our show is on the website at madronafinancial.com. We're also a podcast. We have more than 100 shows on many different topics that you can take advantage of by simply Googling Brian Evans Growing Your Wealth podcast. You will find it on whatever podcast platform is most convenient for you. Once again, if you have $500,000 or more to invest, you're looking to hire a new financial advisor, someone who knows about real estate and taxes and all that sort of thing, we're offering the opportunity for you to get a complimentary no-cost, no-obligation financial review. To get yours, call 844-MADRONA, 844-M-A-D-R-O-N-A, or you can request it online at madronafinancial.com. Out of time for this week, Brian, thank you so much for your time. I want to thank our listeners as well, too, for joining us. For Brian Evans, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out, have a great day in this great part of the country that we live in. We'll talk to you again
0: next week with another edition of Growing Your Wealth. asset allocation or diversification guarantees a profit or guarantees the avoidance of loss. Financial planning is an important tool that does not guarantee specific outcomes.